0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is December 23rd, 2011. It's Friday. This is episode number 47. We have a couple of sponsors that uh, we would like to thank. Very much for making this show possible. The first one is Tapfolio, an easy and beautiful way to look at stock markets. Create a simple watch list or start a real or mock portfolio in just seconds. A true touch experience for your iPad rendered in glorious OpenGL. Tapfolio's third update hits the App Store with a small bonus. It's completely free for the holidays. Get it and share it from Facebook.com slash Tapfolio. Bandwidth for this episode of Hypercritical is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Hear all the shows from 5 by 5 and thousands of other great podcasts on demand and on the go with Stitcher's free mobile app. Stitcher.com slash 5 is where you'll find it. You can also win 100 bucks. Hello, John Syracusa of Massachusetts.
1: Hello, Dan Benjamin of the lower part of the United States. <laughs> where have you live, Florida, Texas, that's it.
0: Uh, no, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
1: Right, but I mean like... Uh, as, an, as an
0: adult, uh, as an adult, I lived in South Florida, Central Florida, and Austin, Texas. And uh, North Carolina, Raleigh area. For, oh, there you go. For a while. More Southern states. Yeah. Try to hit them all.
1: But I'm done now. All uh, right. Stay here for a while. I'm going to start today's uh, episode with a quote. This is from... Wallace Stanley Sayre, S-A-Y-R-E. Okay.
0: Nothing it was, to do... Would you call him a super sayer?
1: I don't know. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce his name. He was a professor at Columbia University uh, in the early 1900s. He okay. died in 1972, according to Wikipedia. Probably and, not a super then. And this quote that I just looked up is from the Wall Street Journal in 1973. Okay. Uh, I don't know how... I guess they quoted him after his death. Uh... Posthumously quoted. Yes. My quote is this. Academic politics is the most vicious and bitter form of politics because the stakes are so low. Have you heard that uh, saying before? I've never heard that before. I have. I've heard it many times before, but I had no idea who it was attributed to. So I looked it up. And that quote applies to two topics from the last show, I think. And we will cover both of them in the follow-up segment. Wow. Starting with the most trivial Of the two with the the lowest stakes and, of course, had the most (laughs) vicious and bitter feedback from readers. Sure. And that is the the offhanded comment I made during some other topic about how I didn't like how some Fortune article had made Steve Jobs' last name possessive. Right. And they had written it J-O-B-S apostrophe and I said I didn't like that. You did not like that. I like J-O-B-S apostrophe S.
0: Now, for the record, I don't remember you saying that you thought that it was wrong. I mean, maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly. I don't remember you saying that's wrong as much as perhaps something along the lines of that's not the the way to do it. That's not the way I like to do it or that doesn't make sense. You were
1: certainly... I, I, I don't like it is what I said, basically, yeah. which which is true. Uh, but then you then you asked... Uh, well, before we even get to that, so regardless of what I said, the the reader's... Lots and lots of feedback on this. Lots of feedback on Twitter. Lots of direct email to my R's account. Lots of uh, email through the form. And of course, the, the most vicious readers were very sure that whatever their position was was exactly correct. Like that there was. There's no ambiguity. There's no debate. No conflict. To uh, quote Darth Vader. <laughs> And that is just a clear-cut issue. And of course, we got feedback in both sides of that, clear-cut in one direction or the other. Now, when we talked about it, you, you first thing you asked me after I said I didn't like it at all, he said, well, isn't this just a style issue? Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, see, when people say a style issue, I'm not quite sure what they mean. I mean, wh- what I said was, I don't, I don't really think it's like a style issue, like how you choose to write. But then I said, you know, different style guides say different things. Because, you know, some style guides say you should do it this way, some style guides say you should do it the other way. So... It's not it's clearly not an issue with a I don't think anybody has the authority to say this is the absolute right way uh, to do it because because uh, opinions do vary so much but I, I very strongly prefer one particular way so if I was creating my style guide, obviously I would say that you should do it this way uh, so I'll, I'll give some example some examples from uh, Twitter and email and stuff of things that people said so here is I guess this is an email here is. Uh, Brian Lennox... Sorry, Brian. Brandon Lennox saying, this is not a stylistic choice. I mean, that's as straightforward as you can get. This is not a stylistic choice. Fortune's treatment was incorrect, and Isaacson miraculously gets it right. Isaacson's book, by the way, says J-O-B-S, apostrophe S, which is the way I, I like it better. So now uh, you're, a fan, you're a fan of Isaacson. Yeah, I don't know. So th- this is this is Br- uh, Brandon Lennox, and, he's, and then he follows it up by saying, I speak with the authority of an amateur blogger. So obviously he's a little, <laughs> little tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, lots of feedback from people whose na- whose last names end in S. Uh, two examples are Adam Weeks and Rob Matthews. And both of them prefer to have the apostrophe S added to the end of their names. Uh, and uh, Rob Matthews actually recommends reading uh, the book Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Have you seen that one? Have not seen that one. Uh, it's a fairly well-known like book about grammar and punctuation. And never,
0: never seen it. Made it through my uh, English degree without ever hearing about it. Yeah, and I think that, eats, so that's, eats shoots and leaves. Yeah, uh,
1: I've heard of the book before. I think I've read part of it, but I'm I'm
0: presuming that it supports. Well, you know what? I'm looking broadcast. at the I'm looking at the cover now, uh, here on Amazon, which I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, and and it it is familiar to me. I'm pretty sure I have seen this, but it, I, hey, you know why not? Like refer to the Chicago Manual st- Manual of Style
1: for this. Right. So and then so that, those are on one side. On the other side, you've got uh, Josh Biggs. Ooh, I can't help reading his names and not think, "Blast Biggs, where are you?" Well, here he is. He's on Twitter. Uh, (laughs) He says, I don't know what kind of school Syracuse went to, but as a person with a last name that ends in S, the proper possessive is S apostrophe. He's he's a last name S ender who likes it the other way. He just likes S apostrophe at it. And then he says, and for the record, S apostrophe S is the British standard, whereas um, the S apostrophe is the American convention. Hmm. And most of the people who are just so sure of whatever they're both of these people people who are who are you know I like it this way because I have last name ending with S and that gives me some sort of authority to say how it should be one way or the other. Obviously, even the people with last names ending in S can't agree. Uh, but but so people are just so sure about it, and, and it makes me wonder. You know, they don't they don't even phrase it in like I like it this way better or whatever. Just like there is one correct way. Uh, Josh Biggs is saying there's one correct way for. British standard, there's one correct way for America. No ambiguity. I mean, I guess it's hard to get ambiguity in one in one forty characters, so that may not be a fair characterization. Uh, and then some fellow named Dan Benjamin responds mm. to Josh Biggs and says, I like this I know. I yeah. I'm an English major. See how polite I am not to correct him on the yeah, show. I never correct you on the show. See that when I read that, it makes me think that you think I needed to be corrected and that you have a strong opinion one way or the other on this. It's I okay. do. I do. Sure. So what is your It's uh, your
0: show though? I'm not going you know. I know. Well, what is your opinion? Uh, S apostrophe, of course, obviously.
1: Uh, do you think there's ambiguity? Like, no. no. No, no ambiguity. No.
0: Oh, d- now, now listen, if, you, if, if, if you're Steve Jobs or Matthews or whoever, yeah. and you you want to add the apostrophe S, you know, that's your preference. Just like you can wear a blue sweater instead of a red sweater. Who cares? You know, it's your your own choice. Uh, but uh, as far as the one true correct way to do it, of course it's S apostrophe. Come on. Of course
1: it has to be. The fewer let, you, because the fewer letters, the better, always. All right, so how do you... Uh, you know, uh, How did you come to that realization? How did I come to that? Because fewer yeah, letters. I mean, the fewer letters, are better. The
0: less I have to write or type, the better.
1: So is that just like your personal... Your, your personal rule is the fewer letters I have to type, the better. Therefore, if, if as there as, This is what I was taught in my,
0: in my technical writing classes. The more efficient uh, you can be, for example... Don't say utilize when you can say use, you know, mm-hmm. you focus on the most clear, concise, effective uh, way to communicate something. So if it, if, it, if the choice is left up to me and I'm going to type J-O-B-S apostrophe S or J-O-B-S apostrophe, well, why, why add the extra S? I don't need that. Who needs that? It, but most of the it's people who, 2011.
1: who had strong opinions one way or the other did not say from where their opinions come a lot of them, I assume that I mean most people get their grammar rules from either what they've been taught in school or reading grammar books after the fact. And I mean, because most people aren't born with any particular preference or grammar rules, a lot of them are kind of arbitrary anyway. But what we're all trying to do is how do you pronounce in- it?
0: Let's let me ask this, John. How do you pronounce it? So if if you I, if you say th- there there this iPad belongs to John Matthews's. This is John Matthews's. Rather, let, uh, let me correct myself. This is John Matthews's iPad. Yeah. Would you say that?
1: Yeah, something it's like ju- that. I see, guess. because the problem is, it, I mean, Jobs is easier for me. This is Jobs' is iPad. Yeah, I, that's that a that little off my tongue.
0: That's a little better. But the problem is, none of these are elegant solutions. The best way to say it is, this iPad yeah, yeah. belongs to, yeah, such I mean, or such a person. So, so no matter what, what you're doing, you're between a rock and a hard place. You're forced into a corner, and there's no good way to do it. I would actually suggest that nobody should have a name that ends with an S. That's <laughs> I, I think it's preposterous. We should,
1: I, I agree with that, and we should implement it right away. Yeah, also, this is so we should all only use ASCII.
0: Let's get on that. The problem <laughs> isn't whether there should be an S after the apostrophe. The problem is why
1: are people having S at the end of their name at all in the English language? All right. So for for these types of issues, like I have, I have my personal preference. Uh, my personal preference is mostly based on. Uh, kind of like the same reason uh, that the Gruber, who we'll get to in a little bit, likes to put the sentence-ending punctuation outside oh, yeah. the quotes. Have we ever because, talked about that? Did we talk about that here? No, but you know, that's—I mean—that's more of a clear-cut case where there is a British standard and, and an American standard, uh, and I, I think most people agree on that. That the British one is the sentence-ending punctuation outside, and English is in the middle. But the, the reason Gruber likes it on the outside, it's the same reason that I like uh, apostrophe s, yes, and that it's kind of like a programmer mindset where you're like. Well, the thing I'm quoting doesn't necessarily have the period in it. So why should the the sentence ending or even like the comma or whatever go inside the quote if it's not part of the quote? You know what I mean? Like, say you're quoting something, you want it to be an exclamation, but the quote is an exclamation. You quoting it is an exclamation. You know, the exclamation should go outside. It's just if like if you're making a string literal in a programming language, it's clear that things inside the, the delimiters are part of the literal and things outside aren't like the. Statement ending semicolon in C or C doesn't go inside the quotes unless that's part of the string literal. Well, that's
0: know? a very good, very good argument in favor of uh,
1: doing it that way. Right. And I think that's why he does. And he, and he makes his own style guide, right? He said, This is how I'm going to do it. Daring Fireball has a style guide. This is what it is. I get to pick it. You know, there you go. Uh, and the apostrophe S just seems uniform to me because, like, when I see S apostrophe, I'm like, Is there more than one of them? And you're saying <laughs> it's to all of them "Is that's, the, that's the, the plural possessive. uh but you know you can't have like your own individual style guide. So each publication has their own style guide. But there are some well-known style guides. Can you name some style guides? You named one already. Uh,
0: Chicago Manual of Style is the main one that I I will follow.
1: Uh, and there's was it strunk but, and white? But, yeah, strunk and oh, white. But of oh, course, oh.
0: of course, uh, Chicago Manual of Style is the one that I followed back when I was in college e- eons ago. Uh, in in our technical writing group, uh, our our school as a as a, a thinking for the whole school. That's what we followed my my mother is an english professor at college and and has been for most of if not all of my life uh and that's what she follows so you know you just you get accustomed to something and and you stick with it the whole the whole you know quotes with the punctuation inside that's one of those things that i love the idea of putting the punctuation outside of the quote but it feels so wrong to me it it just i i like it better but it just feels totally like, uh, I'm, 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 like I know I'm breaking my mom's heart if I do that. So I don't do it.
1: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, I strongly prefer having it outside from a program's perspective. But I have made myself not do it that way to the point now where it looks just weird to me for it to be outside. Yeah,
0: I just, want it. Uh, it's like I want know? it there. I want to do it. But I know that, you know, it's, yeah, and- it's a
1: family thing. And it just looks weird. Like I'm so used to it the other way from reading it so much the other way. Well, Here's something
0: Uh, that bugs me. I know you're making a point. Let me just throw this into the mix. Okay, I'm just going to throw this out there because I want to get your take on this. I know you're working towards something I don't want to interrupt you. It makes people very sad. Uh, What do you think about the American versus British pluralization of things like companies? Like, for example, in the U.S., we would say uh, Apple has just released a brand new iPad. In the UK, at least written, at least written, they would they would write. Maybe they say this too. I don't know. Apple have just released a brand new iPad.
1: Yes, I'm I'm very aware of this distinction, having written about companies a lot in my uh, writing career. I would I would like is? to hear your comment on that. The the thing about it, that is, in certain phrasings, it's natural you find yourself wanting to refer to the companies as plural. But in other phrasings that sounds awkward to us so the one you just gave just sounds crazy to Americans like yeah. Apple have like that's like that's wrong right? right but if you if you've ever like edited anyone else talking about apple or whatever you'll see that people in America will constantly refer to apple as plural in certain constructs and not even realize they're doing it so I try very hard to always catch myself when I do that and make sure that I'm really talking about apple in singular and if it sounds awkward you just you know you you rephrase that's like you said with the possessive, don't kill yourself. Like if it's not working or it seems awkward to you, just just rearrange it. Phrase right. it differently. Use two sentences, whatever. So I, I do like the singular. I recognize that British use the plural. It really, it's kind of arbitrary and you just go with whatever. That's another case where I think it's pretty clear cut where every American publication and style guide says this is the American way and the British. Way. It's like a color and color with the OU and, and not the OU. Is, there's some clear divisions between uh, British and American. Uh, so what I was getting at with the with the this positive vs yes thing is one people are just <laughs> are just crazy about a huge amount of feedback very sure of themselves and it kind of amazes me that people who are so sure of themselves like they don't feel any need to support it like it's just they don't say it's because uh of how i was taught or i work for publication x and publication x uses this style guide but like it's just kind of like a universal blanket statement and i think a lot of people get into that I don't know. I don't want to speculate why they get into that, but it's kind. Of, I imagine it's because they're taught a certain thing by a teacher who's very enthusiastic about being a certain way, and they respect that teacher and learn a lot from them, and they become sort of a disciple of whatever that teacher said. And then, like the support for it doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, and again, getting back to that, you know, stakes are so low thing, the people who just get worked up about the stuff because the, you know it's a trivial issue. And, and you know, I obviously from the show called Hypercritical, I'm on board with that because I do that about lots of things. Uh, so style guides, Chicago manuals, Drunk and White. In, in England, apparently this thing called Fowler's Modern English Usage did, did some Googling for style guides. Uh, there's the AP style manual. Then there's like more esoteric ones like the American Medical Association has a style guide for their papers and, you know, getting getting on down to individual companies can have style guides. Uh, so I did a little survey of like the general purpose style guides. Um, and the Chicago Manual Style, Strunk and White's Elements of Style, and Fowler's Modern English Usage all say add apostrophe s to the end of jobs. Yeah, and the AP Manual Style says no apostrophe s. And there was a big Wikipedia thread.
0: But Te- technically,
1: thing. I should be adding it if I'm if I'm uh, well because I'm mean, a fan of of Strunk and White. Str- uh, not Strunk. Well, Strunk and White has always been like that. Chicago Manual flip flopped on it recently, and like in the most recent edition of Chicago Manual, I think they used to say you could do it both ways or uh, they used to say you should just put the apostrophe where they changed their mind. So maybe when you learned it, it was actually the other way with the Chicago manual, but now they say apostrophe S. Uh, and, and the AP manual, like I saw this in the Wikipedia thread, they were, it was a Wikipedia thread discussing what should be the Wikipedia style guide or is it even possible to have a Wikipedia style guide because so many people contribute and stuff. And this is big debate. And people citing different style guides are saying, well, these people say this and these people say that, so on and so forth. And one of the people speculated that I don't know if it's speculation, but I can't. I couldn't cite it. <laughs> the AP style guide always prefers the shorter version because it's a really old style guide back from the days when you had like wire communication and other things that were like charged by the letter or whatever. And so a lot of the associated press thing, and you know, you had column space and you didn't want to have long lines and you wanted to fit, fit your content in. So if there was ever a choice between one style that used fewer characters than the other, of course, pick the shorter one, which is kind of a different motivation, but the same thing you, as you were saying where It's like a, a minimalism type thing. Omit needless words. Don't, don't make things big, wide and flowery. And if there's a shorter way to do it, use a shorter way. Uh, but my personal, I feel, I feel vindicated in my personal preference that the Chicago manual, Strunk and White, and and even the British Fowler's modern English usage, all, uh, which are like the, some of the top, like general purpose style guides all agree that you should add apostrophe S. And some of them have exceptions for like Jesus and Moses, which was the things I brought up before. Sure. Yeah. I'm after, and, I'm after switch. You're, this is a compelling argument the first, uh, but, first time. But it really is arbitrary, though. Like, it's you, all you need to do is to decide what style guide you're writing to and stick to it. And if you want to make up your own style guide that's a blend of these, just, you know, document it. consistency is more important than the individual thing. But I will say to all the people who are just so sure that whichever way they said is absolutely right, both the people who agreed with me and who didn't agree with me, that anytime you're doing that with, <sighs> Even with things that you think are open and shut grammar cases, be you know look it up. See, w- w- why, why is this? Why do I think this? Is it just because I, it's what I was taught? What, how long ago was I taught that? Where was my teacher getting that information? You know what I mean?
0: Uh, so you're saying, you're saying you're okay however people want to do it, as long as they understand that they have made a decision and it is not a, an issue of being correct or incorrect. It is simply a preference and a style preference for them.
1: But uh, see, I hate the word style though, because when I think of style, I think of it as like not using passive voice or passive voice is grammatically correct, but it's a style issue if you don't want to use it. Like I don't want to sound that way because it's, it's not, it doesn't change the content, but it changes like the feeling of it. You know what I mean? Sure. Versus stuff like where does the punctuation go in the sentence? Which I guess, I mean, that all falls under a style guide. But when I think of style, I think more of like the, you know, two equally valid things, which one reads better versus like a style guide is going to say, punctuation goes inside and you don't you don't get to pick that based on what like how you want them to read this and what kind of message you want to send it's just ah, like this right. is the rule right mm-hmm. but they're all they're all encompassed in a style guide so it's an overloaded word with style but I I very strongly prefer the the apostrophe s and I don't like it when people use style guides and don't do it for example Ars Technica takes a lot of stuff from the AP style guide much of which I despise and every time it comes up like I can argue with them but they say look this is this is the Ars style guide so I don't care how you write it or what you do it's going to conform to the R style guide because it's more important for all the stuff on R's to be uniform than it is for them to agree. But I will still argue with them that, yeah, well that, that that decision you've made in choosing the R style guide is dumb and it should be the other way because mm. I have very strong preferences on, on this issue. But I totally recognize that even the style guides can't agree on it. And and if I want to say, oh, well, majority rules, like most of the style guides I found don't. You you know you can just keep stacking up style guides on either side until you feel satisfied that one party has won or not. You know right. what I
0: mean? And you you could also come back and say, hey, you know why why is the style guide that came out last year better than the one that came out this year? And yeah, you know, no,
1: it's yeah. Why you know do you use the most up to date? Whenever
0: uh, maybe there's reason not to. I guarantee yeah. you know some people like an older style for some reason. Well, I while sure. we while we were talking about this, uh, one of the. Uh, the fan, Scott Williams, uh, who's obviously got the S at the end, he said he prefers the apostrophe S. I, you know, what? I'm going to go out on a limb and say I bet most of the people, uh, who who's, uh, you know, who are unfortunate enough to have a name that ends with an S uh, have to deal with this problem. There, I bet you all of them add the apostrophe S. We don't need to hear about it, but I'm sure I'm speaking for them. I don't know.
1: I bet. But, but you, you should. What you should take from this is. A, uh, you know, I know I'm an English major. A, that's appeal to authority and doesn't add anything to your argument. And okay. B, see how polite I am not to correct him on the show. Correct me. Nice that's thing. the whole point. If no, well, I, I like it. You know, it's your correct. show. It's your show. I know, but you're you're part of it, too. You should participate as well. I and participate.
0: I'd like to, you know, I don't want to, you're, it's all about your theory. I'm not going to stomp on your
1: theory. All right. Theory. And, and part C, uh, don't be so uh, sure that you know you have a solid correction to make, because in this case, as you said, you know you thought it should always be s apostrophe. Of course. Now, now I've shaken, I've shaken your faith in the s apostrophe. I said, I said Please. I might
0: consider switching, but I still believe that the 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 correct way to do it would be the the way that involves the least typing.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: Why why add characters if you can convey the same meaning with fewer
1: characters? All right. So getting get to another trivial thing, uh, I had this in the last show, I didn't didn't get to it. Uh, the, the great 5x5 five five Illustrated site. Yes. Uh, there was a, an illustration for episode <laughs> number 45. Uh, what was the name of that episode? It was Star Wars is Not a Blog Post. Yes. And the illustration for that shows a hand-drawn picture of a, a web browser. It looks like Safari. And it, in the web browser is my Tumblr bra- blog, which I very rarely update. Although I do have a, a post that I want to put up there at some point. It's like my personal non-Apple-related blog thing. Right. It's called hypercritical. That blog actually existed before the show and it's one of one of the other incarnations of this name. And the the uh the URL is uh com slash search slash star plus wars plus for the space. <laughs> uh and the thing the text on the page says terribly sorry, a total of zero results for Star Wars. Um and results is written result and then the S in apostrophe mm-hmm. uh, in an apostrophe the S in parentheses so it's R-E-S-U-L-T open parens S close parens right and I looked at that and I said oh you know I hate it when when things do that I bet that's not how the real site looks so I went to Tumblr and did a search for Star Wars and sure enough like <laughs> this is where, you know when you do a search for Star Wars that is the actual URL it's slash search slash you know star plus wars and the text on the page says exactly that terribly sorry a total of zero results in parentheses right for Star Wars. This drives me nuts as a programmer because as anyone who's ever done any web program, you come across this exact situation all the time where there's going to be so number of things and you're going to stick the number in a sentence and in English you have to figure out whether that's number, number is plural or not. And the super lazy programmer <laughs> way is like, well, I just want to have one word so I'm going to do result and I'll put the S in parentheses and it shows that it's kind of optional because it's my pseudo programmer application of, you know, it takes like, you know, the Turner your operator is not it's, it's not going to take all day to just do one little thing in there and say if you know if it's one, don't put the s otherwise put the s right and yes, localization makes this harder, but you can have to deal with much harder issues in localization you know anyway tough luck, but especially if it's like English only, you know don't do that Programmers out there take the three seconds to put a little conditional in there to write the correct word it's just that shows like. I don't know, I, I always like to pick on things that show, you know, lack of attention to detail. The person who programmed this didn't care about, you know, it, because it's not rocket science. It's not like they're saying, oh, I, I wish I knew how to figure out whether this was plural or not. People know how to do it, right? They just didn't want to. It was just easier for them to just put the string with the number right in it. So I would like to, to publicly shame all programmers who do this. And if you find yourself in this situation, think of my voice in your head saying, <laughs> take the two seconds, make a <laughs> macro. <laughs> throw that ternary operator in there or you know if you're using localization it should really handle this for you uh and you should be able to put a number and then the the thing and have it have your have your localization system whatever that may be figure out the correct way to phrase it. all right so moving on to the next topic which is the thing with vicious and bitter feedback uh, with very low stakes uh, hold on, uh, let's let's do our first sponsor. Okay. that's a good we've idea.
0: Gotta, we've got you know, you need to take a break to, re- you know, rest anyway. We'll do the fun one f- uh, first. Not that the second sponsor isn't fun also, but it's Uncle Slam from Handelabra. So these guys, they've sponsored before. They have this uh, reminder, and game minder thing that, that John Syracuse is such a fan of. And this time they said, listen, Dan, you know, it's a holiday season. We realize a lot of the shows that you do aren't necessarily gaming oriented. You do talk about gaming on the show with, uh, with John Syracuse. So for sure, mention it on that one. I said, all right, what is this you're talking about? This is this, listen, this is uncle slam. This is a new boxing game. It just launched. You basically, you, you play as the presidents of the United States, not the band, but the, the men. And, uh, basically, uh, it's a boxing game and you, you punch presidents. Uh, the single uh, the local, multiplayer mode so you can play on your own you can play with a friend and it used physics-based punching and and real touch-based gestural controls uh it's not the little virtual controller on the screen kind of thing and uh, they believe very strongly that you should meld uh, usefulness and fun so that all the locations in the game they're based on real places in america so you can actually learn about presidential history in the hall of presidents so the game uh, launched about a week ago it has nine playable presidents uh, for ipad in the coming months they're going to be adding more presidents you can buy them within app purchases they're going to have a universal version will play everywhere else so even even john syracuse will be able to play it on his ipod touch so how do you find out about this you go follow the link that's in the show notes or you go to itunes and do a search for uncle slam and uh you will find it so thanks very much to handle they're
1: lucky they don't get caught up in that no political yeah. application policy thing i guess since this is a game. It's
0: it pretty, is a game. It is a game. That's true. It is a game.
1: As long as it doesn't defame the presidents.
0: I don't, yeah, I don't think that they are, def, def, is punching a president defaming them? I don't know. Apple that's, is
1: a capricious <laughs> beast. <laughs> I don't know. Buy it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> really? I just got that uh, I'm maimed. <laughs> Did you get that? Oh, no. That's a, great, though. How do you get the games for it? Uh, I haven't gotten that far yet, but like someone posted it up. Oh, iMame is up. Grab it while you can. Oh, I'm looking at it. Okay. I'll, I'll put
0: this I'll put this in the show. I, I, this is the one by Jim Vandeventer.
1: I assume so. How many other apps could there be called iMame?
0: Does it have a big red joystick and four buttons? Yes, okay. Yes. I will put this in the show notes. By the way, our show notes are brought to you by the uh, the amazing people over at help, uh, helpspot.com, best help
1: desk software ever. Yeah, so I haven't gotten to the point where I I... I Start adding ROMs and stuff. But, uh, how do you add I, ROMs? I'm sure there's some way to like, maybe you add just like you add a like a PDF to, you know, and it's free create a PDF. Yeah, it's free. Uh, I'm sure it will be yanked by Apple soon. So grab all you can. Uh, I got the, uh, uh, NES emulator back when that was on the, the store for like 15 minutes before Apple yanked it. This <laughs> has been up for days though. So maybe they're not going to yank it. Uh, it doesn't come with any ROMs, obviously. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is a case where they're they're going to allow it, although it seems like something that's an emulator. Anyway, grab iMame if you can. So the other topic that had low stakes but lots of feedback was talking about uh, John Gruber's appearance on The Verge and talking about bias in tech journalism and his possible bias in particular and partisanship and all that business, which was the, kind of the, the bulk of the last show. Uh, a lot of feedback on that. Some, some people had an axe to grind, but most of the feedback was really good where it was like, People, people, the listeners of the show are good about responding to what was actually discussed on the show and not going off on their own independent rant about tangentially related to the topic. Right. So here are a few uh, examples. And so, a lot of people brought up good points that I wish I had addressed on on last show, and I will try to address them now. Steve Barr writes, uh, "I'm just reading like snippets of these people's things so they wrote lots of stuff, and I'm trying to get to like the 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 one point that I think is most important." Uh, so Steve Barr says. One can't read Daring Fireball alone to get an accurate view, accurate view of the consumer smartphone slash desktop market. And I think that's true. That's something uh, I wish I had talked about in the last show. When people, if people want to read something and feel like they're getting just like, uh, they're getting all sides of the issue. Reading a blog written by a single person with a single voice is not going to give you that because it, you know, at its best, I think uh, this was in from Gruber and Merlin's, uh, talk at South by Southwest years ago, or I don't even know if they originated, but uh, blogging is like passion plus voice. And so Derek Fireball has a person who has passion. He he speaks with one voice. If he tried to give you all sides of the issue, it would it would not be the same experience. Not that it would be worse or better or anything, but it would not be the same. And that gets to the J word, where he's been like, oh, you're, are you a journalist? Or, you're not being a journalist. Or Journalists need to be objective and journalists shouldn't be partisan. I've always been repelled by the j word i didn't go to journalism school i don't feel qualified to call myself a journalist nor do i want to be a journalist because when i think of journalists i think of someone who I mean, maybe this is, this is another reason why i don't use the word is maybe my definition is totally wrong but when i think of it i think of somebody who is trying to give all sides of the story and find find out as much as possible about something and yes do all the fact checking and stuff that you want to do but they're they're not inserting their own voice Th- their voice is not the, the primary thing. They're they're not like, it's the difference between an opinion column and the news page. And that's, when I think of journalism, that's what I think of. Uh, now, you can have an example like a big site, like The Verge or, uh, I don't even know, Technica or anything like that, where in aggregate, the site together tries to give a big view of the world. Like, for example, Technica has people writing about, it's exclusively writing about Windows and writing about, you know, Android and writing about open source and Apple, and, you know. So an individual person writing for the Apple section can be focusing on Apple and not talking about other things, but the individual person writing for the Microsoft section is focusing on Microsoft. And so, as a whole, the publication is, you know, is a, is a journalistic endeavor, right? And they try to give distinctions between simple straight news reporting and you know opinion and editorials. Uh, and there's always a problem of like, well, where do you draw that line, and how do you how do you make it clear to the reader is this an editorial or not? And if people get confused and they get angry about it. But that's that's different than a blog with even maybe two people, but one or two people, but certainly something with just one person with one voice. That's, you know, the blogging that, uh, that Daring Farwell wants to be, and that a lot of people want to do is it's one person speaking with a singular voice. And that necessarily will not give you the, you know, all sides of an issue, right? Even, even if he tries to do all the research and, uh, uh, present all the information, he's necessarily going to have one view. And I think it would make the, the site less interesting, and certainly less entertaining were he to edit himself to try to say, well, even though I strongly feel this way about this thing, I don't want to, you know, I don't I don't want to put too much of my opinion. That's not what it's about. It's entirely about his opinion. This is, you know, this is Daring Fireball. This is John Gruber. This is not a, a paper. And I, I don't know if he considers himself a journalist, uh, but I'll, in all my writing, even though I write these big reviews of Mac OS X and stuff, I don't consider that a journalistic endeavor. I think, I consider everything I write to be like, an editorial or an opinion column a supported opinion and maybe an informed you know a formed a formed opinion i will defend my opinion with facts but it's nevertheless it's me i have n- i'm not ever writing anything to say this is what ars technica thinks of mac os 10 no, it's this is what i think of mac os 10 and if someone else who writes for ars technica wants to say something else about mac os X, then they can feel free you know what i mean so that was uh steve barr david Sheeney, longtime listener and contributor uh was fretting over partisanship and uh, other issues. We talked a little bit about this in the the chat room, then he wrote some emails. Uh, One of the things he brought up was, when Apple was an underdog and mainstream opinion of the company was low, I think it was appropriate for him, meaning John Gruber, to skewer trollish pieces of the kind that John C. Dvorak peddled, lest those opinions become accepted wisdom. Uh, But Now that Apple has become so big, such articles are just like little gnats buzzing around and trying to get attention. There's enough general awareness of Apple's good qualities that they really don't deserve the time of day and they aren't going to have any effect on anything. So this is a good point of like the environment in which daring fireball was born versus the environment now. When Apple was the underdog, people seemed more accepting of uh, vociferous defense of the little guy. But now that they are so much bigger and so much more successful, people can say, "Well, it's not you know the same thing you did back then doesn't seem appropriate now." Uh, you know why why chase down those people who are saying? Silly bogus things about Apple. Why not just ignore them? Because you know, get you know, you know what I mean. And I feel that some way sometimes too. Like it, the Macalope and, and John Gruber both uh, enjoy finding people who say things about Apple that are just clearly at odds with with reality or with uh, the opinion of the people writing. And they just love skewering them and and showing how wrong they are. And this was a really popular thing to do back when the Mac was just on the ropes you know late 90s Apple was on the ropes people were not using, using Macs for constantly making fun of Apple and so those of us who were still fans of the computer just felt the need to just swat down all of these attacks and that habit can be hard to get out of and it and it still is entertaining to a lot of people including probably the people doing it uh, I mean you know the Macalope is, is a fairly recent creation of you know, only a, a couple of years old or whatever oh who is but, that is that you right between that Nobody knows who the MacLope is, really? except for the except for the people who know. Uh, but I have no comment on who the MacLope is. So you but know, I have no comment on who the MacLope okay. is. But That's you do know. I, if I, I have no comment, okay, we'll talk about and, it that off there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so people obviously like that kind of thing, but it it does seem like less sporting. People who are willing to entertain that type of stuff. It, it becomes uh, distasteful to them when the situation has changed, uh, but obviously there's still a big audience for. It. Uh, and and there is there is still there's still work to be done there. for example, uh, despite Apple's great success, you still constantly see the prediction that uh, Android will be the Windows to to iOS, right? Just as Windows was the crudier product, but was you know. Spread out farther and had bigger market share. Now Android will have bigger market share, and even though iOS is technically better, uh, it it will still get pushed down into some little niche by uh, Android. And you see that sentiment like as if it's a foregone conclusion everywhere. So even though Apple is still, you know, much bigger than it used to be and much more successful, I think it's fair. Uh, I think I think it's still just you know completely fair to. Uh, Attack the people making that prediction with the facts and say, "Look, it's the situation is different this time." I myself have written an article like this, and it's not it's not the same. I know we all want to think that the history tell history tells us exactly how you know the future is going to go, but the situations are different in some important ways. And so, if people you know, people write those articles uh, about Android inevitably winning because of X, Y, and Z. You know, I think the other side of that issue is also worth airing. And obviously, Gruber has one opinion on this, and he's going to write about it. He's not going to. Uh, write about something that he doesn't believe in. He's going to write what he believes and support it with as many facts as he can. Uh, this is from Frank Chai cheery. He gave me a pronunciation. He said, chai like tea. And then the word cheery. Love it. Good job, Frank. Uh, and he was talking about, uh, partisanship and some of his, uh, experiences with this. And he says that Charlie Peters, the legendary editor of Washington monthly used to tell his writers Play Notre Dame in their articles. What he meant was that you should always take your opponent's best arguments. Don't play a half baked tech college. Play Notre Dame. Uh, take on the big boys. You'll be a stronger writer writer for it. I think this is great advice to to anybody. You know, what he's basically saying is if you're going to be, if you're going to support your position, to have to have the most convincing, to to be the most convincing with your with your position. Obviously, they don't do straw men, which is a position that nobody is taking and knock them down. But also, like. Find out the strongest arguments from the other side and take those on to show that you are acknowledging and have an answer for the very strongest arguments of your opposition. This goes back to, you know what I was saying about the advantages of listening to partisans right. who, who are starting from a particular premise and can never be shaken from it. But, you know, and I don't think that's a great thing to be. But they will seek out the best arguments for their position, and so those are the ones that you should take on because presumably they're they're spending all their time trying to find anything and everything they can, the strongest possible arguments for their position from which they're never going to waver. Uh, and so the the play Notre Dame thing is a good uh, good thing to keep in mind. And also, lots of people have different definitions of partisan than I do. I tried to preface the the last section about partisans, but I read the dictionary definitions, none of which exactly agree with mine. It's just getting into semantics. Like we all, as long as we can all agree on what we're talking about. Uh, I was saying it's the person who will who no fact will change their opinion. They have their premise and they are never going to reevaluate that premise based on the changing facts, no matter how they change. They until the day they die. They will always be a supporter of X. And that's the type of partisan. I, I said I didn't like that. That's that's my idea of partisanship. But other people saying partisan is just what I was saying about having passion and voice, you know, from the, the uh, group of Merlin Mann thing that I don't consider partisanship. But that's just semantics. It's just, you know, what what word do we use? to label the bad thing and the good thing. So I I don't think there's any barrier to us, uh, to people discussing this issue, as long as we all know what we're talking about when we say a particular word. So maybe an individual word is not... I I don't like the fanboy label. I like partisan, but obviously partisan, people have different definitions they use for that too. So if you're arguing with somebody about this, make sure you're all agreeing on your definitions. Otherwise, you'll just go in circles and it will not get anywhere. Uh, And and I bring that up because Frank uh, uses the term hack to differentiate between an honest partisan and, and you know, a dishonest one. Uh, one extra point in here is like the, the idea that you are seeking out the best arguments against and taking them on, you got to be careful with that because if you're, if you're not careful, you'll start to, that concept starts to include the premise that you have a side. Right, so I want to I want to find the best arguments against. And if you just if you're constantly concentrating on that, you're never thinking about whether the thing you're trying to defend is still the case. You know what I mean? Like just you have to reevaluate. If you get too caught up in, oh, I got to play Notre Dame, I got then then you you end up becoming that bad kind of partisan who's spending all their time trying to shore up their position without ever reevaluating their position to say, look, is this is this really still correct? Regardless of how well I think I can defend it, is this really still correct? Uh, And I think that's the end of the Gruber section. It's kind of weird that I I end up having two shows before he gets to have a single show. I don't know if he'll even talk about these topics, but, uh, you know, the schedule flips around. He's actually recording after this.
0: Um, Yeah. This usually he would uh, We would have recorded on the Wednesday. Yeah. But uh, no, not not this week because he's uh, wherever he is
1: on, you know, some random vacation. Vegas again. Vegas. Who knows? Tell from the typos. What did he put? in he, he wrote Marcos, and he wrote M A R C capital I apostrophe S.
0: Oh, but he did add the apostrophe. Yes.
1: Well, it doesn't end in an S, but I was nice. saying you were talking about Merlin about how you can tell when Gruber is in Vegas. It's like yeah. because of the the, uh, the typos and what was the other thing? You the,
0: said the, there are usually typos. Most of the sites, if there's a mobile version of the site, it will he will link to the mobile version of the site instead of the regular because he's doing everything on his iPhone.
1: Has he done that recently?
0: I haven't seen that in ages. It's been less ever since I called him out on it. Uh, Maybe (laughs) coincidentally, that was
1: around the time that he stopped doing it in such an obvious way. All right. So uh, moving on to some other uh, follow-up. Jim Murtha writes in about our discussion of Twitter effects unified timeline. Mm -hmm. I was saying, I, I like that because I want to see my replies in chronological order with the rest of the things. And I thought that that would be something that more people would like because... I thought the only people who would like replies separate would be the people who have so many replies because they have so many followers that it would just drown out their timeline. And they'd they'd spend all their time scrolling past a million people replying to them. And I I said, well, they have to be the minority, right? Well, so Jim has a good theory on why people might still want the replies separate. Uh, And it gets back to like, we don't really know, we know how we use Twitter, but I think uh, in terms of like how many people you follow and how many followers you have, we are outliers, probably because we have so many followers relative to other people. Sure. And I think probably we follow fewer people because we both do use it. You know, like how many people do you follow? It's not thousands, right?
0: No. Um, what's the easiest way for me to tell you that I'm I following, pretty... I am following a whopping 190 people, which t- I can't believe I'm following that many, but I think that most of those people tweet once a month, you know?
1: Um, yeah. I, I tried to keep it under triple digits for a long time, but I finally broke. And the reason I broke was because a lot of the accounts I follow have like one tweet every three months or something. So it's it's okay when that happens. So I follow 132 um, and I can read all my things. But but what he was saying is that uh, he says, I follow many people on Twitter, only a few of whom I know personally. And since I'm not a celebrity, internet or otherwise, my followers consist almost exclusively of the very small number of users who I know personally. I think this is probably typical of many Twitter users. Fewer followers generally means fewer mentions and replies. The unified timeline might be useful for people like me, but if you aren't getting replies and mentions fairly regularly, it's probably not a feature that would weigh heavily in your decision of which client to use. So it's mm-hmm. basically saying most people don't get a lot of at replies because they're they're consuming. They're like following celebrities and like one or two people who also don't use a Twitter heavily. And I can imagine that might be a big chunk of Twitter users who, you know, I've seen some statistics of. I don't know if people are just guessing or whatever. They're like. Of all the people who are on Twitter, how many people actually post something like once a day or once a week or whatever? And so it's just a huge number of people who are following you know, Ashton Kutcher or whatever and are not saying anything. And so they're not going to get any app mentions because they're not, they're not like... Partic- they're consuming rather than, than producing content. Right. And for those people, whether or not it has a unified timeline, it's not going to be a factor in their decision. They're going to pick a Twitter client based on something else. So that would also explain why there's not this big outcry for a unified timeline because as far as... If, if you never get at replies... Unified, not unified, it's all the same to them, right?
0: Yeah, they don't care.
1: Um, Apple TV. Uh, we talked a little bit about Guy English's uh, interesting take on what he thinks Apple TV might look like. Uh, Aman Kadim writes in, and a couple of people wrote in with this theory, uh, wouldn't it be much simpler, wouldn't it be more simple to integrate the computer slash box into the screen and let that component be removable for optional yearly hardware upgrades? This is, this is a lot of uh, people, a lot of people have this theory, a lot of people cited the Duo doc, do you remember that?
0: Yes, the Duo Dock was something that you would uh, you would take your, I guess, PowerBook, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, PowerBook Duo.
0: And you would connect it to a little dock and there was a little thing that it would latch onto so that you could have all of, this is back in the days, way before Bluetooth and even most wireless mice and keyboards, and you would connect all your peripherals to it so it was simply just, you drop the thing in the dock, you click the thing, boom. I never had one of these, so I, knew, I didn't know people that did have them. I thought it was it, quite quite handy.
1: It enveloped the computer. It was actually, you would slide it in like, yeah. like a piece of bread going into a slot toaster. And on the back of the thing that you slid it into was like this big honking connect proprietary connector that it, it would you know put all your ports out. And it was great because the Duo, the PowerBook Duo was really skinny. It was it was the, the MacBook Air of its day. I guess right. The Power, PowerBook 100 was the first MacBook Air of its day. But the second MacBook Air of, of Apple's laptop era was the PowerBook Duo. Really small, really thin. Uh, and it could be really thin because it didn't have to have any of the stuff that was on the docks or the floppy drive and all that other stuff. And then so you'd get this really nice portable computer that you could use. But when you got back to your desk, you could slide that sucker in there and have your full-fledged Mac experience with your monitor and everything. And it was nice. I know in, in academia, a lot of a lot of people when I went to college, a lot of the professors had that because they loved that the ability to walk around with that laptop and then have the big setup when they went back. And um, what I replied to a few of these people who I replied to and before I gave up replying to all the people who suggested this was that I really don't think that Apple is going to produce anything like the Duo Dock in the near future, and, the, and there's a couple of reasons to think about that. One, the the fact that they haven't done anything like that in a long time. The closest thing I can think of that has all the disadvantages of the Duo Docker is like the iPod connector, the dock connector, and I've already complained about that. But the main thing is like when when it came time to do something like that with their modern products, which is basically the MacBook Air, they rather than doing a dock, they they put it all over Thunderbolt and a little power connector. So they did the little Y, you know, the split cable that comes out of the back of a Thunderbolt display. Right. That has the power for your laptop and also Thunderbolt that proxies all of the Firewire and Ethernet and all that other stuff. They could have just as easily made a dock to have that stuff, but I, it just seems like like those dock connectors are just big and ugly and proprietary. And yes, Apple has been known to make proprietary connectors in, in the past, but it trend seems to be away from that. They used to have proprietary connectors for everything. Or if not proprietary, then at least obscure. But like the Nubus slot, which wasn't, wasn't proprietary. I think Sun used Nubus too, but it might as well have been proprietary because nobody else was using it. Everyone else was using uh, ESA and what was the IBM thing? Microchannel or whatever. Uh, and you had ADB for the keyboards and... All, all, you know, every connector was custom. The Apple's printer ports, you know, lots of things were physically compatible but not electrically compatible. Uh, but the trend over, over time with Apple has been to go away from those and go go to standard. Even even in, you know, the, the Jobs 2 era when they did the ADB port, which carried uh, display, power for your display and USB. And was FireWire on there too? I don't remember. Uh, that was w- over one connector. They moved away from that. They went to DVI. And a lot of people were annoyed because, like, they oh, they love the elegance of this this Apple display thing. But Apple said, "No, you know, I know it's less elegant to have DVI, and we have to do this double data rate DVI and all this other stuff." But we don't want to have proprietary connectors anymore. They went to USB instead of all their old stuff. Thunderbolt is, even though Apple seems to be ahead on it, it's not Apple. Apple didn't make it up. It's an Intel standard. Anybody can use it. It's you know. So I don't think they want another proprietary connector. I, I've complained about the the iPod dock connector many times because it's proprietary, it's fragile, it's got lots of pins. And I would not want uh, someone can hear what I'm saying. I was saying ADB, not ADC. Yes, yeah, so those two separate things: Apple Desktop Bus and Apple Display Connector. Anyway, uh, the the dock connector on the iPod has this really important property of lock-in for iPod peripherals and everything. But I mm-hmm. still think it was a bad idea because I don't. I think serial is more the way to go. I think if Apple, if Thunderbolt existed before the iPod took off. Apple would have used Thunderbolt, at the very least, used Thunderbolt as its bus for uh, for iPods, assuming the the uh, connectors could be shrunk down to the point where, they're, uh, where they could fit everything in and not have any heat issues or whatever. Uh, I don't like big, wide connectors with lots of pins. And a dock connector that carries lots of stuff over it, especially if it's a proprietary, ends up being this big, wide, parallel connector with lots of pins on it. Uh, so I think... It, Apple does not would not make something that like you slid an Apple TV box into and behind it was this big honkin pin. Now maybe they could do something where you slide the Apple TV in and behind it is just a Thunderbolt connector and power, or like it just plugs into a bunch of standard ports. But I don't I don't see Apple doing that. I think they like they like no wires best of all, one skinny little wire, second best, and big honkin proprietary connectors, not at all for their desktops and laptops. That's that's my prediction. Assuming they do anything like this at all. Assuming they, they have an actual television set and need to connect it and so on and so forth. So Gabriel Moreno writes in to say, have you considered a Wii-like pointer to interact with the TV in a way similar to how we interact with a stylus and a touchscreen? Uh, that's something that I haven't seen many people bring it up, but as someone who uses a Wii, I, I have thought about it. Uh, the, the Wii is interesting because they went through a couple of different phases in terms of uh, how the software works. So the hardware when the Wii originally launched was this thing that had accelerometers in it so it could tell like which way it was tilting tilting up to a point until the accelerometer is maxed out out. and then it had an IR emitter on top of your TV and there was an IR receiver in the Wiimote and so by pointing the receiver at the emitters it could tell kind of where you were pointing on the screen uh, assuming many other factors when an IR is not the best thing in the world because like say you had really bright sunlight coming through a window directly at the IR receiver on your Wiimote it could get confused. It can get confused by certain kinds of bright lights, uh, and so a little bit later in the development of the Wii, they added the Wii Motion Plus, which was this gyroscope. They couldn't. It, it's not unlike an accelerometer, which just like tilts to a certain point and then it's maxed out. A gyroscope is supposed to be able to tell what the orientation is at three, in three D space. Uh, so you could put it any angle you wanted, and in theory, the gyroscope knew which direction was level, and it would say you are this many degrees off this axis and this many degrees off this axis, and they. They can get confused if you shake the thing real hard and you have to reset them and all that stuff, but uh, they added that, and then they integrated Wii Motion plus into the Wii Mote, so now you had accelerometers and gyroscopes and the IR thing now a lot of games that required you to point at the screen and shoot at something uh, early on they used the IR emitter so like the early Metroid uh, was a Metro, Metroid prime three you would point at the screen and it would tell where you 're pointing based on the the two IR emitters and the receiver and figure out where you 're pointing on the screen. Uh, and they had to use, do lots of software smoothing because if you just literally uh, showed the actual values of where the remote thought, uh, you know, where, where the system thought the Wiimote was pointing in any instant in time, you could see these big jumps and stutters and everything. So they would smooth it out uh, with software to try to make it a smooth experience. But it was still kind of twitchy. Uh, later, and a lot of games did similar things to this, you know, other first-person shooters and stuff like that, later games seemed to be moving more towards using the gyroscope to figure out where you're pointing. So it actually doesn't even matter if you're pointing at the screen. Well, I guess it kind of does because the gyroscope is aligned a certain way, but it's telling it's basically looking at how how far is your Wiimote tilted. So if you want to, if you want to move your your cursor up on the screen, you tilt the Wiimote up. And the system is not figuring out where the Wiimote is pointing. Like literally, if you shot a laser out of the Wiimote, it would hit that part of your screen. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe it would actually go over your TV screen, but it's clear when you're holding it, go up, go down, go left, go right. And that's really what people just want. They just want a way to control the thing. Not so much, oh, oh, I'm pointing exactly at the corner of the screen. And if I had a laser pointer taped to my Wii, that's exactly where the cursor should be. And the gyroscope tends to be less jittery and less subject to environmental factors than the IR thing is. And maybe they use a combination. I'm not quite sure they use, like, for a modern game like Skyward Sword, for example. So when I think of a remote that would be like a Wii, I think of uh, using the b- current best practice, which is go, just go with the gyroscope. And I think, does the Roku have that? Someone in the chat room might know. I think there are TV attached boxes that already do this, that ha- they give you a little remote thing to hold in your hand that uses gyroscopes or accelerometers or something similar, not an IR emitter, uh, to direct the cursor on the screen as an easier way of going down, 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 right, select, up, up, select, down, you know, all that business with the, with the remote. It's a little bit easier if you can just point. And it works really surprisingly well. Uh, you can do lots of software trucks to make the cursor kind of stick to something like in, 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 Skyward, in Zelda, Skyward Sword, when you're they put up a bunch of buttons on the screen that you want to select, you can just kind of flick the remote in the direction of the button you want, upper left, lower right, you know, and, and it will kind of stick to it instead of making you aim exactly for the button and be frustrated because you're just off a little bit, right? Right. Uh, someone in the chat room saying that Roku's use a D-pad uh, and, but they don't know about the Fancy Angry Birds. Well, I think it might be one of the Roku's that uses it. Uh, but anyway, I think that is a good idea and I'm sure Apple has at the very least tried that out because from what we all hear about what goes on inside Apple they're going to try a bunch of ideas. They're going to decide which one is best but, and they may not ship it and they, they may even try it develop it and patent it but then never use it. So I have to assume that they have seen the Wii and Wiimotes and things that Roku and stuff are doing and have given that a try. And we'll see if they decide that's what passes muster for input method for your Apple TV. Uh, but it's, uh, you don't hear a lot about it because most of the people writing about Apple TV are thinking about touch or u- using something from Apple technologies like, well, how does iOS do it? Has the magic trackpad do it? You know, how does the remote app on, on iOS contr- uh, currently control the stuff? And we can use it, uh, you know, and not so many people are just looking to the game world. you know. I also haven't heard people say, they least you should use something like Kinect or use your whole body to control it and you wave your hands back and forth to change shows and stuff like that. That's also possible. I'm not sure that you would even investigate that because that seems like a pretty expensive uh, solution and Microsoft hasn't quite even mastered it yet and they're still just in revision one. So finally, that's actually all the follow-up I have. Believe it or not, that was all follow-up. Wow. Yeah. And I do have the the poor... The poor lonely topic that got pushed to two shows now finally waiting to be discussed. And we could we could do that topic or we could talk about Lego Star Wars. I will leave it up to you. Remind me what the topic is. I never told you, but it's uh it's an article that you brought up on the talk show a while back. It's why Harper, why Hypercard had to die. Do you remember talking about that? I briefly? sure do. Yeah. So that's, I wanted to say some stuff about that too. And that's how long it's been in my notes. But, or we can talk about Lego Star Wars. So we, I will leave, leave it up to It you.
0: has to be one or the other. I can't We can do both. both if you have time. Well, we started early today. Yeah, all right. So we so we started early. I I think we do, why not? Why not do both? Okay. That's all how right. I feel. I mean, do you want
1: that, second sponsor before we do. Sure.
0: Right. I do that. It's a, it's it's a, it's a quick and easy sponsor too. You'll like that. It's tiny letter. This is a, a simple newsletter app. For people with something to say, there's no HTML templates. There's no sign up embed code. There's no API. Each account includes just a single mailing list. You write it, you send your newsletter. That's it. It's simple. It's personal. Best of all, it's absolutely totally free. Always will be free. You visit tinyletter.com to sign up and start writing today. That's
1: it. Simple. Williams in the chat room says the Roku XS has and he quotes enhanced remote with motion control for games. Hmm. Not sure if they use that in the menus, but clearly it's in there for stuff like Angry Birds or whatever. Because no, you gotta, I, you gotta I, have your Angry Birds.
0: I just got this iMame, but I downloaded it on the computer that's in front of me right now with my regular iTunes account, not the computer that I use to sync things up. I do have that computer set to you know automatically download things, you know, new things when I get them, but. I've heard in the past that if you get a, an app before it is pulled from the store for some reason, that no matter what, you can always download that app. You will always be able to get to that app. Do you know if I this think, is true? Can you corroborate this?
1: I've heard that as well, but I've never tested it. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping it was true because I had the same situation. I had to... I I was actually holding my iPod Touch when I found out about this, and I couldn't actually download it on my iPod Touch because it requires uh, iOS 4.3, and I can't even run that on my old iPod Touch. Right. So I quickly went over to my Mac and just bought... You know, I was going to buy it there. I didn't realize it was even free. Uh, And just did it there. Of course, uh, that's not the Mac that I use to sync with the iPad. So later, like two days later... Uh, first of all, I figured I got to download it on my Mac. I've got the uh, IPA sitting in some directory. Worst case, I could like manually, you know, drag it over and do stuff. Sure. But when I pulled up the iPad, it, you know, the the new world of iTunes is you go to it and iTunes and it knows you already bought it. And it's, you can go to the purchased apps thing. You don't have to go to the, the product page. Just go to, you know, in the, in the app store on iOS five, go to the purchase button somewhere on the bottom. And it will show stuff that you've purchased that you can't, yet, that you haven't yet downloaded. It'll have the little cloud icon. And I assume that it will continue to show that little cloud icon. Uh, Oh, no! TJ Luma says it's definitely not true. Some apps are removed and you can't get them again. Uh, so, you know, I've never tested it. Maybe some people have run into the problem, but it, since it's still in the store, we I couldn't test it here. So I, I hit the little cloud icon and download it onto the iPad. Uh, and Scooter Computer says he thinks it depends on why Apple pulled them. This is the thing with these, these things. Even if you have done this before, even if you had this exact situation and you said, oh, I, I bought something and then it went away and I couldn't download it on my iPad. And, you know, that really doesn't tell you whether in the future that will also be true, because Apple's policies change without notice, arbitrarily at undefined times, with no communication to developers or customers. So you just you just never know. That's why everyone scrambles to get the stuff as soon as they can, and you know, right. get it all synced up. All right. Why HyperCard had to die? I mostly just want to talk about HyperCard. Uh, I did read the article, and it does have offer theories on why hypercard went away and stuff like that but i think you talked about a lot of that with uh gruber on the talk show but it it made me start thinking about hypercard too i guess i'll i'm only addressing a few of these points well here uh,
0: can you can you please explain to people who maybe are not familiar with hypercard very briefly what what is or was hypercard and why should anybody care about this thing
1: yeah, my my. I'm looking at my notes here. I have a little first section on like describing what HyperCard is, and I realized it's probably not going to help people because uh, I I start by saying HyperCard is a lot like small talk, and if you don't know what HyperCard is, the odds of you knowing what small talk are is slim. But uh, I'll give it a try. So, HyperCard was an application that you ran on a Mac, classic Mac OS, and when you ran the application, it, it sort of it, it entered into this environment, and the metaphor was like you had stacks, and they had cards in 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 the uh, in the stacks, and it was an environment where you could create an application inside this other application. And the thing that you created, that stack, you could save out and do a separate thing, and that would run inside the HyperCard environment. And what you were creating were basically GUI applications. You could drag out little buttons and uh, text panes and make little things where you click on this, you go to a different card. to use the card metaphor. It was kind of like hyperlinks where you'd you'd click here, you go to a different card. That card would have a bunch of fields, a bunch of buttons, and you would connect actions to these buttons. When you you put a button in, you could connect a script to it, and you wrote in this language called HyperTalk, which is kind of like a Friendly programming language, not you know you didn't have to do memory management or anything like that. It was kind of more like scripting, but uh, and so you you would make you would make these uh, app- GUI applications. Uh, and now they weren't standalone applications like other Mac applications, so it wasn't a first class app, but it was a HyperCard stack, and they could do fancy stuff. People use them, you know, would make apps for accounting or database or whatever. I made a bunch of HyperCard stacks as a kid, uh, doing all sorts of things. It was kind of like since. I didn't have a web browser. The web didn't exist yet. I would make things that you would normally make as web pages. Like a, a, an interlinked series of things. I, I remember doing like trying to do point and click adventures where I draw a little picture with a bunch of little things. And if you clicked on that, you go to a different card or some a new thing would appear on the screen. <laughs> cool. Right. And later, you know, the game missed the blockbuster game. missed was actually built on HyperCard. Uh, Sorry, completely vindicating the concept of creating point-and-click adventure games on HyperCard. I'm like, wow, they actually use HyperCard. Of course, it was a little bit better than the HyperCard games I had been creating at, like, you know, uh, 12 years old or whatever. <laughs> uh, but the great thing about the original version of HyperCard, like, it was literally a HyperCard stack. And if anyone had used HyperCard, you knew that if you held down the command key, you'd see dotted lines around the regions that were clickable, because that would help you debug your HyperCard stack to see if you had set stuff up correctly. So in the early versions of HyperCard on the Mac, you would launch it, and if you got stuck, you could hold on the Command key, and it would show little dotted lines around the things you could click, which was uh, kind of cheating, but sometimes kind of not, because just because you could click there didn't mean any action would occur; it just meant that you know if you hadn't pulled this lever and then click there, something happens. But anyway, I think they fixed that in subsequent versions. Uh, so I, I said it was like Small Talk because Small Talk was like this self-contained environment. I don't know the terminology for Small Talk, so Small Talk fans will yell at me as I describe this, but. In Smalltalk, the environment for developing your applications was the same environment where they ran. And it was like, it was self hosting. It was like one big image, Smalltalk image of the entire environment the the OS, the quote unquote OS, the Smalltalk's virtual OS, and the programs you wrote and the ID that you're using to write them. Everything was all there. There wasn't any distinction between I use this application to create an app and then I run the app. The place where you created the application was the place where it would run. The thing you were creating the application with was the same. You were just basically modifying the existing environment by I'm going to augment the environment, you know, and you would just add to it and add to it. So that was what HyperCard was like. It was a separate world where you made these HyperCard stacks and they didn't exist outside of the world of HyperCard. Now, it wasn't really self-hosting like Smalltalk was. I don't even know if it's the right term, self-hosting. It probably isn't. Uh, in that you couldn't, Modify hyper, the HyperCard environment itself by writing a HyperCard stack. You were clearly writing a stack that ran within the environment, so there was that distinction. But it reminded a lot of people of small talk because it made it easy to write applications without memory management and all those other. You know, it was much harder to write a, you know a Mac Toolbox application in C uh, back in those days in Pascal or whatever than it was to write a HyperCard stack. So the reason I want to talk about this is that at the dawn of the PC era, there was this idea, and you heard Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak uh, express this idea as well back in the early days of Apple that, or back even before the early days of Apple when they were just, you know, the homebrew computer club. that Giving computers to individuals instead of having them being kept by the men in lab coats and, and pocket protectors in the big place, giving a computer to an individual person uh, w- was exciting because it was like, you know, previously the Department of Defense or the big company could have one, but now an individual can have a computer. And wh- what did they think that meant? What? So once an individual computer has a computer, how does that change things? Well, they thought that when you gave individuals computers, individuals would be excited to do with them the same thing as people were doing with giant computers. The difference was that now you had access. So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak loved to go and, and play with the big computer on a terminal and lo- love to like, write little programs for it and stuff like that. And they figured, wow, if everybody had a computer, ev- you, know, you wouldn't have to go to this building and beg somebody for time to use this computer. You could write programs on your own um and that's why so many early pcs like they came with some sort of programming language like some, some of them even booted into it they, i remember in my first contact with, with personal computers was that when you turn one on you got a basic prompt that was just that's like that's how a pc worked and you could write your own program at that prompt or you could load a program from a tape or whatever and it just had and, it, it
0: had it built it had built in right
1: you and, could and, actually it, just
0: it, turn on a computer and sit down and start writing basic
1: yeah, nothing is in it. No no floppy drive, no anything like that. And, and if it didn't have it built in, or, or you know, the first thing you would get for your computer is like, I need I need to get BASIC or I need to get a better version of BASIC so I can write better programs. For right,
0: my thing. because whatever you had there was whatever had shipped with the computer. It might be BASIC instead of BASIC A uh, advanced or whatever it was and, and you you didn't want to be stuck with that.
1: Yeah, and, and like I remember uh, you know, getting a computer that didn't, when you turned it on, that didn't have uh, some other programming language prompt was like Oh, that's kind of lame. I, you know, it doesn't even come with one. Like, well, this this computer is useless. You can't, you know, <laughs> that's can't right. write a program in it. I got, I got all All right, fine. I'll go out and buy, you know, Microsoft Basic and stick on this thing, or the, you know, the next. And then it, 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 that's just how how computers came into the world. And it makes sense to them coming out of a bunch of nerds who like to program. Uh, uh, the reality was that you know what people really wanted to do with computers was something useful, not so much write the program. So it was like. All those people who are excited about having their own computers—they wanted to write programs, but other people weren't excited about having their own computer. Didn't thought it was kind of silly. There's some quote I should have looked this up from the IBM person. Thought, thought there was a market for maybe like a thousand personal computers or a thousand computers in the entire world, because like honestly, why would an individual want a computer? Because and the reason they they thought this was because. What was done with computers was that you wrote programs for them. They said, well, you know, come on. Who's going to write a program for computers? It's just us nerds who are going to write programs for computers. And if you don't want to write a program, for, why would you want one? Because that's what you do with a computer. You write programs. Uh, and so the reaction to seeing that you gave all these computers to people and they, they didn't, you know, non-nerd people eventually got computers and they wanted to run, you know, VisiCalc or something. They wanted an application to help them run their business. They didn't want to program VisiCalc. They didn't want you to give them a computer. Finally, I can write programs. They were never going to write programs. And so the reaction to this from the computer industry was, oh, I see the problem. All right, so we got these computers to everybody, but no one's writing programs. This program is too darn hard. The the solution is going to be, let's make programming easier. Because obviously, like, we're giving these people these computers, and they don't don't even understand what they've got. They're just like, all right, so I load some software. And it's like, no, you can write programs. Don't you understand? You've got a computer in your own house, and you can write programs for it. Isn't that awesome? We used to have to go to that build. Don't, you know, they don't get it, but I guess it's too hard. What we've got to do, us nerds who are into computers, we've got to make programming easier. And that 's when you saw uh, things like I don't know, you got a logo for kids right and you, know, you move the little turtle around the screen apple scripts where it's like plain English type of programming Hypercard is an example where it's really hard to write a GUI application so let 's make an environment where regular people can finally can finally get the benefit that we all thought they should have from computers, which is you can write your own programs you can make you know it's a, it's a it's a general purpose computer don't you understand you can do anything uh and I think that really did broaden the base of what people could do. People, people who are not programmers, you know, who never would have tried to make a Macintosh GUI application made HyperCard stacks that, you know, they ran their business on for years. I, I'm sure someone out there will have some story about someone whose business is right now, as they're listening to this, still running on a HyperCard stack, running on some like Mac SE or something. I have read stories about that for years on the Internet where it's just like they wrote this awesome HyperCard stack and it exactly fit their business Uh, and they made it themselves and they're so proud of it and they just want to keep running it forever and they're disappointed that HyperCard uh, didn't live on. Uh, Now, let's think about uh, today's application, I don't know, application making environments, uh, things that make programming easier. The, The trend today is to make the pieces do more. So in HyperCard, you can make a button and you can make a text field, and you can make a checkbox and you can make like a, a word that you click on and it goes somewhere. Each one of those things is actually fiendishly complex from the perspective of like a basic prompt. Just getting like a functioning button and GUI and an event system and a windowing system is tremendously difficult. So it's just an amazing feat. Like, hey, you just drag a button out or click and make a new button. Isn't that great? Uh, but today, like you think about an automator workflow, the pieces of that automator workflow, like, things you can drag into an automated workflow are more complicated than the most complicated programs that existed in the dawn of the PC You know, one little piece of an automated workflow can do this amazing image manipulation by just checking a bunch of checkboxes or think of Quartz Composer with the things that that can do with no programming whatsoever just by connecting up lines and setting values. It's unbelievably powerful pieces, individual pieces that you can connect together with little lines and dots and just clicking buttons and GUIs that can do amazing things and that you can build, you can build up a pretty complicated program with an automated workflow by connecting these incredibly powerful pieces that you didn't have to write, which is even more powerful than just connecting a bunch of buttons you didn't have to write. you know what I mean uh, so that that seems to be the, the trend these days is like a, a uh, another way is like a very configurable tool right where automator. Automator is not, you know, so it's not a programming language. You don't have to write, there's no code at all. It's it's just like a tool that you can use to build other tools and it's very configurable. There's lots of checkboxes and you control how the pieces, you know, connect together and what the inputs and outputs are, right? Now, my take on this entire endeavor of making programming easier uh, is that in all these cases, AppleScript, HyperCard, Automator, th- the the harsh reality is that anything that provides this benefit that you know that lowers the bar for people to do powerful things they can configure themselves uh, inevitably in all cases leads to programming i guess programming programming with a capital p, even an automator workflow right once you will, once you get beyond the few set of things that you can do, you very very quickly get into. Actual programming, conditionals, loops, uh, abstraction, uh, you know, and that that leap into the world of being a programmer. It's it's great that we've lowered the bar and more people can get into that world. But the people who make that leap, they they are the programmers of the world. They are the people who think like programmers and can do that type of thing. And most of the world still, and I think always, will not be that type of person. Uh no matter how easy you make it, and I don't think it even makes a difference how easy you make it, no matter how powerful the individual pieces are, you will so quickly get into a situation where to assemble those pieces, you need to understand loops, conditionals, functions, abstraction, you know, data sharing. You know, it, it just, it's inevitable. There is no way you can make programming easy enough that you don't need to understand those concepts, and I think those concepts are not natural to most people. They're most natural to nerds and going up the spectrum of like less being less nerdy. I don't even know the particular attributes of nerddom that make us uh, m- make this type of stuff make so much sense to us. Uh,
0: or make it an enjoyable or, you know, tolerable yeah. at
1: worst. Or, you know, scratches our itches or it makes us uh, feel good. I actually, I should do a whole show about what what actually makes people good programmers and how it's usually not what <laughs> people people themselves think. So I should put that in the notes. All right. So, while I think it's great that these tools have been providing more powerful pieces, I think the utopia that people might have envisioned before, you know, before the dawn of the PC age or just as the PC age was dawning, that geez, you know, once everybody has a computer, everyone will be able to be a programmer. That will never happen, unless we, you know, unless the entire world's wiped out and the only people left are programmers, you know. <laughs> It it simply will not happen. Doesn't it? Doesn't mean that all these things aren't good. It just means that that's not going to happen. And they say, well, HyperCard is gone, and if hi- we still had HyperCard, everyone be, would be making awesome HyperCard stacks. Everyone would not be like the percentage of people who can make awesome <laughs> HyperCard stacks is so small. I, I I think we definitely need to continue to make development better and better for programmers, so programmers can be more productive. But we are we're never going to be in a world where everybody reaps the benefits that we as programmers feel we can reap. We are making the world better for programmers and we programmers in turn will make the world better for everybody, I hope. Right? But it's never going to be something that everybody does. It's kind of, And it's kind of weird to, like, to think about that. It's kind of like someone saying, boy, these amazing new modern woodworking tools are going to make everybody build their own cabinets for the kitchen. Right? It's going to make woodworking much more awesome and will broaden the base of people who can do woodworking versus, you know, it takes more skill to use hand tools and chisels to make awesome fine furniture and then it does to use power tools but it still takes a lot of skill and it's not going to suddenly make the entire human race able to make awesome furniture themselves with power tools a they might not even want to and b the skills for doing that are not as widespread as people who are woodworkers might might think they're going to be and it's just kind of presumptuous of programmers to think the only thing stopping the entire world from from reaping the benefits that we as programmers reap is the fact that computers are. That you know, our big machines in a big room. Once we get them all out to the people, uh, everyone will get it. Okay, well now they're all out to the people, but it's too hard. We'll make it easier. It's it's just never going to happen. Uh, so I I sympathize with people with the death of HyperCard, and I think we do need to make those tools better and better. But I I do want to uh, come out against the notion that we're all going to be programmers because we're not. The only people who are going to be programmers are programmers, and I we can grow that base. I think we can grow that base, but there's a hard limit on it, not beyond a certain point. Oh, and one more thing to talk about here. The thing that kills me about tr- the ways we've tried to make programming easier and broaden the base is a, a lot of them seem to be based on that that uh, mistaken notion that anyone can be a programmer. Uh, AppleScript is a good example. And even HyperTalk a little bit of or the way HyperCarb is made of saying oh, the problem is that syntax is like weird and uh and that's it's off-putting to people with the, with the square brackets and the semicolons and the weird punctuation and all these harsh rules about syntax and you got to write it exactly right. What if we made it more flexible like English? You know, you know, select the contents of window one, uh, put the folder into the window. You know, that's Apple script, right? And you can phrase it in lots of different ways and it will do the same thing. Uh, but use English words, not punctuation. Because people who are not programmers have trouble with that punctuation. Uh, making programming language more powerful and more forgiving is good. But trying to do it by making programming languages that no programmer wants to use is not the right way to do it. Uh, and I think AppleScript, with very few exceptions, is that syntax and that that type of language is looked down upon by "quote unquote" real programs. Not because it's not powerful or anything; it's like it's Turing complete, right? It's just it gets in our way. And, and the decades and of decades of programming experience the human race has says that you know it's good to be forgiving and flexible and everything. But the English language, I think, as we established at the top of the show. Mm-hmm. Is actually fiendishly complicated, and people can't even write regular. You know, we don't even know how to communicate to each other successfully in prose. with keeping programming out of it, that's not that's not the model to use for telling a computer what to do, right? Uh, I, I expect that people might send email uh, to me saying, "Well, what about Perl? That's a big thing. Is that you know, it's got more than one way to do it, and it's got to got to be more like a language." I think Perl is a great example where they took took the things that make programming languages easier, things about context. Uh, and, uh, and having different ways to write the same thing based on context. Those are, those are ideas that we use in written communication. But Perl is not, it's not, they didn't go whole hog and say, it's like, it's like the skeuomorphism of, uh, of programming language. Oh, we're going to make programming language look like this other thing, which isn't a program. We're going to make it look like prose. Perl does not look like prose. I don't think anyone has ever said that Perl looks like prose. It takes the concepts from successful linguistic communication, linguistic structures and applies them to a programming language. Uh, And by the way, I'll also add that this came up this week because I was doing a lot of JavaScript. Perl has such awesome error reporting. It will tell you... It will figure out like, oh, I think you forgot to close a quote way up here and that's why this error message down here is saying something nonsensical to you. It will do the work to figure out... you know. And this happens just from decades of development and stuff. And every time I use a programming language like JavaScript that isn't as forgiving, it will just say, uh, you know... Unexpected token blah. And you look at that line, you're like, "That's perfectly fine." And it's because 17 lines earlier something wasn't terminated, or you forgot a semicolon, or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't help you out. It doesn't. Say, it doesn't say. By the way, I think it's because you have an unterminated string constant. Or by the way, I think you have. Uh, you know, you didn't realize this was a continuation of the previous line, but it actually is. Uh, that's that's another example of making programming language friendlier for programmers because we all know what it's like when you get some obscure error message. You got figure out that error message makes no sense. What is the actual error? especially the languages and the compilers that were just, it's not languages really, it's the implementation, the compilers, they will just plow forward and give you 8 billion messages and you got to like go to the first one or the last one or try to figure out what was the actual error before this thing went totally off the rails and the parser was completely confused and it had no idea what was going on, you know. So, I, I think make programming languages as high level as you want. High level programming languages are great, but English is not the way to do that. That was That was a blind alley. So that's why I'm One of the ways I'm not disappointed that HyperCard went by the wayside and we got things like web programming where it's using a high-level language but it's not like English and there are a lot of things provided for you. You know, HTML is easier than doing your own screen drawing using core graphics or whatever, although the canvas element starts confusing that a little bit. But uh, I think the web is a better example of a programming environment that allows more people to be programmers. But I don't think anyone would argue that programming... JavaScript for the web is not real programming. so That's what I have to say about the death of HyperCard. The death of HyperCard. Why HyperCard had to die. It didn't have to die. That's another thing (laughs) I'll add. If HyperCard HyperCard had lived on, it would be fine. The, the, The article, if I recall, goes into this whole thing, conspiracy theories about how Apple doesn't want people to be able to make their own programs and how... HyperCard empowered the users, but Apple is all about not empowering them. Uh, I think Apple, as a company, has come to the realization that we're all not going to be programmers. It came to that realization long ago, and so it's not so concerned with making, yeah, you know, making programming environments that everyone can use. Ready to talk about Lego Star Wars? Lego Star Wars, the complete saga,
0: the complete saga. So there were uh, a while ago. Not sure how many weeks ago it was. We discussed getting a Wii. And one of the games uh, that you recommended was this uh, Star Wars. The, the official name is Lego Star Wars The Complete Saga. It's a, a Wii game. It's also available for PlayStation 3 and Xbox, Nintendo DS. Apparently, even for the Mac. Did you know that? I did. Uh, so this game, I guess, collects a whole series of other games that came out before it. It's, you know, it's a very popular game for Wii. And it's very cheap as far as games in general go. It's like on Amazon. And again, this will be in the show notes and the show note, the URL for the show notes is five by five dot TV slash hypercritical slash 47 uh is seventeen, eighteen bucks. If you have Amazon Prime, that's it. Eight seventeen seventy seven is the price in there today. Four hundred and fifteen customer reviews and it's got four and a half stars. So I got this thing. Loaded it up. It's a fun game, fun little game. There's an adventure you can do, or you could just like you said, you can just run around and smash up the little bots that respond endlessly.
1: Are you playing it, or is your son playing it?
0: I've not. I've not in yet introduced it to him. It's probably going to be introduced uh, in a couple days on Christmas.
1: So, have you been probably. actually like playing playing the game, like as in advancing through? No, I just and ran stuff? around and, and you know messed around with it a little bit. I think it's a two player mode. I think you guys play. Yeah, but just get two motes and you both run around.
0: Right. So I, my wife and I, you know, looked at it to see if it was something he he would do or would be interested in doing or would be appropriate and uh so you don't get it seemed like you didn't get to pick uh, who you are you're just these there's just the two guys anakin and uh you run around and smash things and
1: well you know you unlock things eventually you can play as every character in the entire universe you have to like buy them with virtual in-game currency that you find you know right it's it's all about unlockable stuff and so the things i I mentioned last time that i want you
0: can you can remote control c3po make them unlock doors and Make the little droids do things. It's a neat
1: idea. It's a great, very cool game. Yeah, and the thing I was so surprised about when I got this game, first of all, for for kids, I would say that the first, the only barrier really to playing this game successfully is grasping the concept that you move the little thumbstick around and the guy runs, which actually is a pretty significant leap. That I know many adults have not made that leap yet. But kids kids once the kids get it, they they will you know they will get it and that'll be it and you won't have to, to worry about it. But until they get it, it can be frustrating them to see the little man on the screen and not quite understand what they have to do with their body to make the little man uh, move. Right. And waving the we mode around to make the lightsaber around is great because that, they'll figure that out on their own, right? But you still gotta make the guy run around and there's a jump button. Do you find fi- is it
0: easier for you to wave the Controller around to make a lightsaber because I found it easier just using controller to, to.
1: Yeah, do we're, we're old school. We use the buttons, uh, yeah. but I found that kids like to wave it. It's more fun, you know, and they're <laughs> and they're not so concerned with the the max. They weren't brought up in the unforgiving world of actual arcade games, right? Like eight or quarters or even like early uh, Nintendo games, where it's just you know we, we're all about efficiency, precision because we're we have to, must battle the machine. But yeah, it's a, it's a kinder, gentler word for kids But the thing I wanted to say about this game is I was shocked by how difficult it is, even for me as an adult gamer, to figure out what they wanted me to do next to progress in the game. Yes. None of, none of the individual tasks were ever difficult, but I'm like, geez, this is supposed to be a game for kids. You should be doing the thing, you know, like think about the early levels in a Mario or a Zelda game. They 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 are so great about holding your hand and saying you know, this is how you jump. And here's a fun thing. It's not like a demo level. Like the game itself ramps you in. It says, we're going to do something that's going to teach you how to jump without ceiling. I like you're learning how to jump, but unbeknownst to you by doing this fun thing, you are learning how jumping works. And then they add to it. Okay. Now here's how double jumping works. Now here's how sliding works. Now here's how you use your items in Zelda. Here's how you use your sword. You know, it builds and builds and builds until you have the skills and they lead you through. Here's the next thing we think you should do. Oh, you should go over there and do that. Or this is lighting up, you know, very clear never you're never like stuck there going i don't know what to do next right at, at its best great nintendo games and other games and especially kids games should lead you through and let you know to further progress in this level you must do this now the star wars lego game unbelievably feel no compunction about just letting you sit there and go geez i have no idea what to no, do." i'm I mean, just in bad. this
0: room i guess
1: yeah i'm just i can't get out of this room none of these doors are open i have no freaking idea nothing is glowing No little hint is appearing, you know, and I know like serious gamers hate that where it's like you've been you've been idle for two minutes and some little character comes out and hey, I really think you should go see, but you know, like (laughs) don't don't give me the hints. It's baby, but this is a game for kids. (laughs) So tell them, geez, tell them what they should do. And, you know, like, especially in the beginning, I assume that's what kind of game it would be. I'm like, geez, this game have a bug or something. Because it's not, it's not clear what we're supposed to do next. And yeah, you know, as a gamer, I can go through and figure out what they want me to do. Oh, you got to go up to this torch and use the force to yank the pieces of the torch off. And that inexplicably makes the wheel of a car and bring the wheel of the car over to the car. Yeah, how and, you would
0: know, you ever figure that out?
1: It's, it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide text adventure. There's, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no logical way you could suss out, if I do this, this will uh, make some item that's totally incongruous that will allow me to advance in the level. Right. I, I mean... As a gamer, eventually you learn, oh, use the force on everything, break everything up anytime you see, destroy everything, hit everything with your sword. And I guess kids will figure that out too. But it's kind of cruel to make them basically use a brute force attack to figure out how to progress in the game. Now, I, d- I didn't get any complaints about this from my son because what does he know is one of the first games he's played. But I would say that is the biggest failing of these Star Wars Lego games is that there is not enough handholding in terms of progression for the kids. So uh, when you're playing with your son, I advise you to figure out what to do next. Otherwise, he will get bored running around in the same exact spot because he'll want to, like, what, when do I get to play as, as you know, Luke in the flight outfit? When do I get to fly next wing? When do I get to, to wrap around the snow speeders? And you won't be able to do that unless you unlock stuff. So you will. Someone will have to progress through the game to unlock stuff to be able to play all these things. And whether that's you or him, uh, it's worth doing because you can't get the maximum benefit out of the game without plowing through these very obscure uh strange uh, non helpful gameplay things that you have to do okay then yeah, this was your topic this lego star wars but you're just saying thumbs up for it but you didn't notice no i didn't this... i didn't say thumbs up for it did i say those did i say so you that? said uh, you he know it seems okay i haven't i yet. haven't
0: put it put it in front of them yet yeah, for, friend, for his yeah. fourth birthday, he got this big, he, he's really into, really into like Batman and Spider-Man and, and superheroes in general. Star Wars is such a distant third, maybe third, you know, he's way more into the superhero stuff. So his birthday, you know, he got this, uh, my my mom got him this, this Bat Cave thing he's got the little figures he's you know so right now that was like the big thing and we didn't want to have that and the we and all happening at his birthday he's you know his birthday is close enough to christmas so we separated that out and uh and then my father-in-law and and, and that side of the film then now they got him one of these geotracks batman geotrax thing so we may not even be brought out for christmas who knows he doesn't even know he doesn't even know what's there He knows who Mario is.
1: Can can you imagine if when you were a kid, you knew that this was happening? First of all, I don't think it was happening with my parents, but I I do the same thing where we will will buy things for our children, but not give them to them and just sort of like keep them in storage. Like, oh, well, this is, you know. Oh, this isn't even
0: in storage. This is right there under under the TV in the entertainment center.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, hiding in plain sight type of thing. Whereas if I knew, for example, that my parents had bought the Millennium Falcon playset and thought, eh, we'll not give him to this for just wait a little while, maybe give him for his birthday or something, I would have gone nuts knowing that that's in the house and they weren't giving it to me. I, that oh, didn't yeah. actually happen. They would just actually buy things and give. But kids these days seem like they have more toys than mm-hmm. than you know, my my children had more toys by the age of two than I'd ever owned in my entire oh, life. Th- very
0: well said. Absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's this video I remember this guy who had trained his dog uh and he would put, he would like balance the treat on the edge of its nose and he would have, you know, this amazing treat right in front and he would like make it walk forward and and then walk backwards away from the treat and then lay down and all this stuff, knowing that the treat was centimeters away from the mouth of the dog. And, uh, you know, it's... It, it, you're almost saying it's like that but the kids they don't have any idea and they don't care they're just happy to get it whenever it's there and and it's certainly not like he has no toys you know we have a room of toys i don't even know where these came from i don't know
1: how he, they they're here yeah and when we complain about this i find myself complaining about this all the time it's like you know people say especially people who don't have kids will say well you know the toys don't buy themselves. You, the kids aren't buying the toys. You are buying the toys. Guess, if, your yeah. kid, if your kid has too many toys, it's because it's you're my buying fault. too many toys. And there is definitely truth to that. Although I also think that the the phenomenon of relatives buying toys has also gotten worse. In that, uh, when I was a kid, you know, my grandparents would get me one toy, and not be really be that interested in what that toy was or whatever. But now the grandparents want to get like umpteen toys. Oh, he doesn't have. Does he want this? Does he want that? You know, that's just that's what grandparents do, and that, that's what we all do. That we all, especially for nerds. I I keep meaning to set up all the Legos that my son owns in his room, assuming they will fit in his room, and photograph them just, just to catalog the madness. Because when I was a kid, all of my Legos fit into a single Tub, steel, right? steel toolbox right. container that was about like a foot and a half high, about <laughs> six inches deep. And that was all the Legos I had. I had, like, I had like a bucket. You want
0: to play with your Legos? Dump them out. That's it. That's what you got. Yeah.
1: And that... W- that, and everything I made had to be predicated on, oh, if, if I had one more wing piece, I could do this, but I don't. And, <laughs> That's you know, right. Like, everything I made had to be <laughs> built, or, <laughs> built around the limited set of, you know, space <laughs> Legos that I had, right? You know, you remember that
0: movie, you remember that movie, uh, Firefox with Clint Eastwood?
1: Yeah, I think Russian. Yeah,
0: that, okay. Yeah. So, I wanted to make the Firefox toy, and I had some of those, you know, I don't know if they still even make these things. They were flat panels, like you could... They were very, very thin and you would just put them on top of a another surface and they were just flat. And you Ooh. know, I never had enough to cover the surface of the of the plane. Oh
1: yeah. I, I didn't have enough <laughs> bendy pieces to do two wings that bent down. I just had one, <laughs> right. one big bendy piece and <laughs> one big hinge. The tor- yeah. tortures of the damned. Yeah. So the, a lot of the reason I think that we find ourselves with children with way too many toys is now it's like compensating for our childhoods because we can't help it like oh buying, I'm buying these Legos for my kids but Jesus I'm buying it's half buying the Legos for myself I I don't I don't build these Legos I make my son build every single Lego set himself the only thing I do when we sit down to do Legos is I will find the pieces of the inventory for each step because he has trouble finding them in the big thing and you know if we're going to divide labor I find the pieces I put them out for you he has has to figure out where they go and assemble them all himself uh, but yeah a lot of it is. Nerds buying nerd toys for their kids that they wish they had when they were kids, and that's part of the reason, you know, it's our own fault why our kids end up with too many toys. Uh, but so getting back to buying toys and not giving to them, uh, I mean, maybe that's that's a little bit better than just giving them too many toys. At least we're recognizing they have too many toys and we're trying to do something about it. We're working on it, you know. It's a twelve step program. But when I when I got Skyward <laughs> when I got Skyward Sword for my son, he was dying to get that game, uh, and and my wife was like, oh, you should give that to him for as one of his Christmas presents. But I wanted to play it before Christmas. That one's going to happen. So I bought Skyward Sword and I put it with all the other Wii games, you know, uh, in the entertainment center, slotted in with all the little white, other white DVD shaped cases. And it sat there for like three weeks while we were playing another game because we only play one game at once. We were finishing up some other game. Nice. You never noticed it. It's amazing that kids don't, you know, he he can read. He could have gone over there and read the name on the spine of every single Wii game and seen Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword and he would have flipped out. But now it was there for weeks. Never even noticed it kids these days yeah maybe they will listen back to this and, and be shocked that, that the uh, the torture we put them through but since they're not so starved for toys like there's no way that a millennium falcon plays that could have been hidden in my house and me not found it at uh at that age someone in the chat room pasted in the url to the uh, lord of the rings legos coming in summer of 2012 right yeah i'm i'm excited about that too i'm ashamed to say my son is not excited but i've showed him the animated movie of the hobbit but uh that's about it. I think that's all we have for today's episode because we're, we're wandering into completely un- un-tech-related topics. But yeah. no, mm-hmm. it's the holidays, folks. So you just got to give allowances for uh, stuff like that. And we, people
0: have asked, well, again, I'll reiterate this. We have been asked if we will be doing shows next week. And in fact, John has agreed to do a show each day of, of the week next that's week. Not. So that's that the Monday through Friday of next week, you can tune in and catch John live from 8 a.m. to, uh, to 8 p.m.
1: I'm going to get as many shows in as possible before Gruber records again. <laughs>
0: that's
1: right. Cause you mentioned this is two.
0: Yeah. Quickly, uh, unseating John Gruber
1: as uh, the man with the most shows. Actually, that's not even true. That's not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to be older than my older brother in five years. Just wait. <laughs> Well, I suppose I suppose he could stop recording for two and a half years, and then I could surpass him. But
0: I don't see that happening. Don't give him any ideas. It's bad I, enough I, I, that he takes these vacations. Yeah, how dare he? Yeah. Well, I guess that is it then for this episode, and uh, this is the last episode before Christmas, but not the last episode of 2011. We will have at least at least one more. You got to go get that call, right? What call is that? Phone just rang. Is that not you? Not me. That's my house. Far. Who? I don't know. It's all. Everything's ringing here. Okay, could be in your <laughs> ears. Oh, look at that. Just... <laughs> I have my fa- because we have this landline. This is funny. We have a landline. It, it's not actually a landline. It's through the the cable modem. You know their service. They give you a phone line. So a, I, we don't uh, never use it. We never receive incoming calls on it. We only sometimes call people. Uh, so I have my uh, printer, wall-in-one printer fax machine thing plugged into it at all times. And I have it set to answer immediately. So because we don't even have you know, nobody, nobody calls us on this thing. So hopefully anybody who would dare call it is going to be assaulted by the, the fax machine. <laughs> Instantly. Assaulted
1: by beeps. Yeah, beep, beep. yeah.
0: It's a it's a in case anybody wants to know it's an Epson WorkForce 633. You can do this remote scanning, you can send faxes to it. So if you need to send a fax, you can just print, you can just hit print and it'll it'll fax right from the print
1: dialog in macOS 10. No no additional software necessary. Did you know about that kind of thing? You know? I did, yeah. I, was, I never want to do actual real paper fax I always want to do the magic print, and then it magically faxes out. Yeah,
0: I prefer to do things over email with with PDF uh, and, and things like that. But when when you, you are required to fax something, that that's the way to do it. And it scans like that too, which seems it doesn't doesn't seem possible. Like that that's one of these things. All the stuff, all the cool toys that we have, all the neat stuff you do, an airplane, everything else. The idea that you can print right to a fax is like uh, mind boggling
1: scan over the way because you don't have to plug in it's all it's all wi-fi can print directly to a papyrus scroll <laughs> that's,
0: that's right <laughs> it will chisel
1: your message on a little pyramid
0: it's <laughs> very cool stuff all right john well have a great uh have a great christmas
1: you too dan and a happy hanukkah